as we turn in our Bibles once again to the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at the second half of Acts chapter 8 this morning. A story that I think is very familiar to many of us. Perhaps one of the most familiar stories of the New Testament. In church, it's almost impossible to say the Ethiopian and not have it be followed by someone else saying eunuch. That's how familiar this story is to us. But I would encourage you to give close attention to the reading of God's Word. To hear what the Lord has to say and not merely remember what you have heard. So if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 26, we will read through the end of the chapter. Hear now the very Word of God. It is completely without error. It is completely sufficient. And it is completely authoritative. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself? Or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azorus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it to our hearts. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that You would teach us from Your Word. We ask, O oh Lord, that You would remind us that Your Word has power, that Your Spirit has power, and that You are active in our lives, even before we are aware of it. 
Lord, we ask this morning that You would show us Jesus. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, we take a bit of a different view in the book of Acts. We've been seeing the Lord build His church. We've seen the conversion of thousands. We've seen the conversion of thousands in Jerusalem. We've seen it in Samaria. We've seen it bustling about throughout the known world of Palestine. But we've seen it more on a large scale as the Lord has built His church and we're looking at the sheer wonder of the church advancing. But this morning we're going to turn and get not a different picture, but a closer picture. We're going to put on a zoom lens, if you will. You know what that's like when you have a camera and you get a a panoramic picture of perhaps a group of people, maybe a group of people in a stadium. And then you use that zoom lens to zoom in to see a particular person or two. We always enjoyed when we went on a family vacation back home to the Buffalo area to go to Niagara Falls and to see the falls in all its wonder. And even in all its wonder and glory, the kids still enjoy most of all climbing up on the binoculars that you put quarters in so that they can zoom in and see the boat, zoom in and see what's happening. And that's what we are going to do this morning. I trust and pray that the thrill of God's Word would be as much as a child with binoculars at the falls. Because we are going to be seeing for the first time how the Lord is affecting an individual in Acts. We've seen groups made up of individuals, but the next three chapters show us the conversion of individuals. An Ethiopian eunuch, Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and Cornelius, a Gentile. And so, this morning we're going to see an encounter that God has with a person. I pray that it would help us to see how the Lord encounters us. Because I think there are many, many similarities. Even if we are not Ethiopian, and even if we don't own a chariot. I'd like us to see three things this morning. First, I would like us to see the preparation for the encounter. How the encounter is prepared for, and who is doing The preparing. And then secondly, we will see the presentation in the encounter. The presentation specifically of the gospel. And then thirdly, we will see the product of the encounter. What results from this encounter with God. So preparation, presentation, and the product. Let's begin first by looking at the preparation for the encounter. There are three persons involved here in preparing for this encounter. The first is an Ethiopian. He is an Ethiopian who is seeking the Lord. This is obvious because of the circumstances and the description we see from Luke. He is, of course, from Ethiopia. Now, Ethiopia in ancient days was more than just that small country that we can find on a map now. It was basically all of known Africa south of Egypt. It was called Ethiopia. Or in Old Testament times, it would have been called 
Cush. That's like push, but with a C. Cush. Wherever you see that in the Old Testament, they're referring to Ethiopia. And we might think of this area more like the Sudan. It was a large kingdom. It was a wealthy kingdom. It was a powerful kingdom. It was the same place where the Queen of Sheba came from. You remember her. She traveled some great distance to see the wisdom of Solomon and to be in the temple of the Lord. It's about 1,200 miles away. Now think about that. 1,200 miles basically by foot. I don't like to drive 1,200 miles because it takes two very long days. Do you have any idea how long it would take to walk 1,200 miles? About five months. One way. So this is a man who is seeking something. He goes on a year-long journey. He's not just off on vacation. He's not sitting at a Starbucks in a chance encounter. No, he is seeking something. He is seeking the Lord. He's also a very important man. We see that by his description in verse 27. He was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He was a man who was very high up in the Ethiopian government. That would be typically why he would be a eunuch. High-level officials who were in charge either of the court or the harem or especially the treasury were typically eunuchs. They were trusted more by kings and queens because they might not be tempted in areas of sexuality. This is often the case in how spies get information today. They use human lust. They use human longings to get information they shouldn't have. And so the ancients had a solution for this. They made men eunuchs. Put them in charge. And he was in charge of all the treasury of Candace. Now, Candace is not a person's name. It is a title like Caesar or king. She was the mother of the king. Because you see, the king of Ethiopia was viewed as a god. And he couldn't be bothered with mundane things like running a kingdom. He had important things to do, like sit in a chair and be worshipped. And so his mother ran the kingdom. And so this Ethiopian is at the very top of a major kingdom, an empire we might even say, a very powerful man. He is very likely what we would call a God-fearer. That is, he had some associations with the living God, the true God. He perhaps learned of him. Maybe there were descendants of the Queen of Sheba who had brought the true religion to Ethiopia. But he was not a Jew. He could not become a Jew because... He was a eunuch. As a matter of fact, it would be impossible for him to enter the temple. Deuteronomy 23, verse 1 says, It is forbidden for a eunuch to enter the temple. So the closest he could get, if he wasn't a eunuch, was the court of the Gentiles, a bustling place more like a marketplace than a worship center. But probably the closest he could get as a eunuch would be on the outskirts of the temple. So he travels 1,200 miles and can't even get into 
the temple. Why would he travel 1,200 miles? I think it's because he must have been unsettled. Again, this is not a lark. This is not a, a fun journey, months through the desert, to get to what is essentially a backwater town or city in the Roman Empire. Jerusalem was not a magnificent specimen. It wasn't Rome. It wasn't Alexandria. It wasn't Ephesus. Something drove him. A need. A desire. A yearning. He traveled a very long distance because he wanted to know more about God. Do you know anyone like that? Who asks searching questions? Who desires to know more about the Lord? Who maybe perhaps is not sure of what all this Christianity and the Bible is about? But you see, this Ethiopian eunuch is seeking. And he comes to Jerusalem, and what does he see? Well, we know what Jerusalem is like. We've been looking at it the past few chapters. If the Jerusalem that he saw was anything like the Jerusalem that we have seen, he came to the temple and he saw legalism. He saw coldness. Well, who are you? You're not from around here. You certainly don't look like we do. You have a funny accent. You're not really a Jew, are you? Why don't you go stand over there? Have you kept all the commandments? Have you kept all of the interpretations of the commandments? He comes 1,200 miles to seek the living God and he finds no answer. He finds no answer for his soul. He's still seeking. And we see that from another little fact that we learn. He is returning back to Ethiopia, seated in his chariot, and he is reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, you have to understand that in those days, you didn't just buy a pocket-traveling Bible and read through it. He obviously was in Jerusalem, did not find any answers. Perhaps he asked around, what, where could I find answers? Where could I find about who this God is? Where can I find out about how He relates to people outside of Israel? And perhaps someone, maybe someone who wanted to make a few dollars said to him, well, if you really want to know about God, you should read Isaiah. And I just happen to have a scroll here. And in modern dollars, he says, I can sell you this scroll, no problem, only $80,000. You say, $80,000? That's more than most people make in a year. Exactly. You see, the price of a scroll would have been astronomical. The ordinary person did not own a scroll. They went to the synagogue where there might be one or two carefully maintained for decade after decade after decade. But you see, this man is so seeking after the Lord that not only does he travel 1,200 miles, but he lays down a small fortune for a scroll to read. Are you seeking the Lord like this? You who have Bibles nearly for free. You who drive 5, 10, 30 minutes to be with God's people. Does the Ethiopian eunuch put you to shame? I would encourage you to have this kind of seeking attitude, an attitude that seeks the Lord. Because this is a preparation for a meeting with God. 
But you see, the Ethiopian is not the only one who is preparing. There's also Philip. Philip, we might call him submissive Philip. Philip who is submissive to the command of God and the Word of God. You'll notice that Philip is obedient to the command of God right from the very beginning. Look at what happens here in verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he made himself a note in his day planner to consider this two weeks hence. If, of course, it were a convenient time and he could get release from his important duties. Your Bible doesn't say that, does it? But far too often that's what our lives say, isn't it? You see, God says, arise and go, and shock of all shocks, Philip arises and went. Can you believe that? He hears the command of God, and he doesn't equivocate, he doesn't hesitate, he doesn't complain, he simply obeys. Remind yourself of Philip the next time you know the command of God from God's Word. Not just that Philip obeyed, but remember the great blessing that came to Philip because of his obedience. We'll see that in a minute. But you see, the command is immediate and Philip obeys, and it is not an easy command. It's not simply, would you get out of bed? Those commands are hard enough, aren't they, parents, as we try to get children out of bed? Would you get up, please? This is the third time I'm asking. Would you get up, please? This is the fourth time I'm asking. No. This is a very odd command. Now, I want you to see what's going on here. Philip, please get up and go out into the desert. And go south. Now, this word for southward is is a very interesting word. It comes to mean south because it actually means noon. And the sun at noon is in the south, in the Holy Land, so it came to mean going south. But we might even think about it as, Philip, go out into the desert place at noon. Why is that odd? Congregation, tomorrow, go mow your lawn at noon. Anybody interested? Really? Why not? Well, because you'd collapse to the heat. And because no one mows the lawn at noon. No one goes traveling on a desert road at noon. But there's more. You see, Philip is sent out of a vibrant ministry. Philip could just as easily have said to God, The Lord, Lord, why do you need me to go out in the desert? There's plenty of Samaritans around here. I'm preaching the gospel. They're being converted. I'm doing your work. This is a vibrant ministry. Why would you take me from it? We might have expected God to have to badger Philip, the way parents badger their children. But no. He is in submission to God's ways. He knows that it's God's plan, not His plan. Even though... Philip was in the limelight. He was the evangelist in Samaria. 
even though Philip had the success. He drops everything because God asks him to. Is that amazing? Philip drops everything simply because of the command of God. He doesn't even say, Lord, Samaria is so much more strategic than a desert road. We could learn from this as the church in America. We're so busy worrying about which areas of the country are strategic. We have to find the best places to go with the Gospel. The most exciting places to go with the Gospel when God tells us merely to get up and go with the Gospel. Philip is submissive. But there is a third person preparing here for this encounter. And it's the Sovereign Lord Himself. You see, Israel in the Old Testament was to be a light to the nations. We may forget that. Israel was to be a byword. It was to be a shining city on a hill that the Gentiles would see and that they would long to worship the Lord. But it didn't quite work out that way, did it? Israel often fell into one of two errors. First, they might fall into the error of separatism. That was what would be highlighted now in this place and at this time. That is, separating themselves from people who weren't pure-blood Jews. We don't have any dealings with Samaritans. Oh, and we don't have any dealings with Gentiles. Oh, no. They're not worthy of the Word of God. Don't let a Gentile touch a Bible. He might pollute it. Be separated out from the world. And when that didn't seem to work, Israel would at times, it would seem, swing in the other direction in the direction of syncretism. How can we be more like the nations? Can we add their gods to our God? Can we add their worship to our worship? Let's make some high places. We want to influence the world? Let's take some Babylonian deities on. Let's do this. Isn't this often what the church is like? Either don't come to church unless you're dressed properly, have memorized your catechism, and know your Bible verses. Or, come on in, it's just like sitting around reading the paper, drinking a Starbucks. We do everything you do at home. But you see, God is correcting the people of Israel. He is managing all of the circumstances to bring about His will. How did the Ethiopian even know about God? Because of God's providence. Because He had worked through the Queen of Sheba and others. Who arranges this encounter? Do you think it is mere chance that causes Philip to bump in to the Ethiopian? No. We're not even left to guess this because God through His angel tells Philip exactly when and exactly where to go. He is arranging an encounter. He has prepared the heart of the Ethiopian. Do you think the Ethiopian just happens to be reading the scroll of Isaiah? It's often been called the Gospel of Isaiah because it so clearly presents the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think he just happens to be reading perhaps the most evangelical text in all of the Old Testament? Isaiah 53. Why isn't he flipping through Leviticus 12? Or 2 Chronicles 18? 
Because it's God who's at work here. God who is preparing this encounter. God who is preparing Philip and the Ethiopian. And so Philip comes upon this Ethiopian. He obeys the Spirit. Go over and see him. And he runs with an eagerness. There's an obedience that is not just willing, but it is eager here. And Providence has set up the perfect setup for this encounter. The odd circumstances notwithstanding, Philip runs up to the chariot and he hears the Ethiopian reading from the book of Isaiah. Now, you have to understand that in ancient times, most reading was done aloud. Very few people read silently like we all do today. You would sit and open a scroll and you would read it aloud to help yourself to understand. Especially a scroll like this that was very likely a Greek translation of the Old Testament. We know that because the Greek text of Acts 8 is identical to the quotation from Isaiah 53 in the Greek. All the letters would be strung together, they would all be capital, and you would read them aloud. And Philip has the perfect opportunity. How many of you have gone to Kroger or HEB or to Starbucks or Chick-fil-A and had someone standing next to you reading the Bible out loud? It's kind of a nice opportunity. A good opener. Right? You see someone, you're standing next to them, you're thinking about all the different pre-evangelism you need to do, ways in which you can set up the Gospel. And here, Philip walks up and the guy's reading from one of the most evangelical Scriptures in all of the Bible. And so Philip seizes upon this opening. Now notice how easily and naturally he seizes upon this opening. He says, Do you understand what you're reading? And it's actually kind of a very interesting statement. It's a, it's a word play. Because the word for understand and the word for read are almost identical. There's only a little prefix to the word reading. It would be like saying, do you understand and do you over-understand? And so he asks this question. And the Ethiopian responds quite naturally. He says, well, how am I supposed to unless someone explained it? Do you know any Bible teachers here out in the middle of the desert? And Philip says, well, I just happen to be an ordained deacon of the first Presbyterian church of Jerusalem. And, and I'm an itinerant preacher. I've been preaching through Samaria, so let me see if I can try and explain it to you. And the Ethiopian eunuch, in his best impression of Monty Hall, says, well, well come on down. Come up here and explain it to me. Now, can you imagine this? Have you had many encounters like this? No. <laughs> it's because God's at work here. But I want you to notice something. God is at work, but every place where God is at work, Philip seizes the opportunity. You may not be confronted with someone at Chick-fil-A reading Isaiah and looking over at you and saying, do you have any idea what this is about? Could you teach me? But someone might come alongside you complain about the economy and wonder how anyone could have hope. That's an opportunity to talk about hope. You might have someone who's in line behind you sigh and you look back and they say, oh, you know, I just don't know how to get control of my children. I don't know where I could find wisdom. There you have an opportunity to show wisdom. 
See, opportunities are all around us. They're just not in 48-point font like Philip has. But we can seize them just like Philip does. So that preparation has been made, and he then begins to proclaim the truth of God's Word. I want you to see how he proclaims it, what he does, because what he does is applicable to every single one of us as we have opportunities to share the gospel. His proclamation of the gospel is threefold. First, it is Bible-centered. Second, it is Jesus-centered. And third, it is salvation-centered. You notice first, it is Bible-centered. He does something that in today's day and age is spectacular. Perhaps almost unknown. The Ethiopian eunuch has this scroll out with Isaiah 53, and he says, could you explain this to me? I don't understand what I'm reading. And Philip resists the unbelievable urge to say, well, could I please share the Romans road with you? No, 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 let's turn to the Gospel of John. Here, I know a good verse here. Are you tempted to do that? Because that's the evangelism presentation you've learned or you've memorized? You see, what Philip does is, he remarkably starts where the question has come from. He starts in Isaiah 53. And he begins with the Lord Jesus. He actually expounds the text. Now that requires two things of him. And this is hard work. But I challenge you, if you desire to share the Lord Jesus with others, you must seize upon this hard work. First, he actually has studied the Bible. He knows where Isaiah is. He knows where Isaiah 53 is. He's read the text. He understands something about it. He may not be able to write a dissertation, but he understands something about the text. You too can come to that kind of understanding by simply reading through the Bible in a year or reading through the Bible in two years to understand that. And the second thing I want you to see is that Philip is so full of Jesus that he can take any text and go to Jesus. He is filled with the Lord Jesus Christ. His delight is in Jesus. His delight is in to share the Lord with others. And he can do it from anywhere because he knows his Lord. He actually answers the questions that are put to him. Now, if you don't want to follow Philip, let me strengthen this for you. Follow Jesus. Well, what do I mean? Philip meets a woman at the well, and she starts talking to him about water. Where does he begin? With water. A Pharisee comes up to him and has a question about what it means to be born again. Where does he begin? Being born again. You see, Jesus begins where we are. He doesn't end there, but He begins there. And that is the challenge. And I will say, as a challenge to myself and to you, it's especially a challenge in a Reformed church. Because we always want to begin where we think we should begin. What we think is the most important doctrine, or the most critical doctrine. Now, I'm not saying ignore the great doctrines of the faith, but don't Try and put a square peg in a round hole. Begin where people are and then take them 
to the great doctrines of the faith. Because then the light bulbs will really go off. Then they will be ready. Because if you try and jump ahead, they'll just say to themselves, he doesn't even want to answer my question. He probably doesn't know anything about Isaiah 53. He doesn't even know who the prophet's talking about, himself or somebody else. Begin where they are. Be Bible-centered. But notice also that Philip is Jesus-centered. He takes him right to Jesus Christ. He doesn't stay in Isaiah 53. He begins at that Scripture, and then he begins to teach him about Jesus. Now, notice what the text says. He told him the good news about Jesus. It's the same word that is used in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Look up with me. Those who were scattered about went preaching the word. And you remember I said preaching isn't really the best translation? It's really that they went out gospeling, telling the gospel, sharing the gospel. This is what Philip does here. It's all you need to do. You need to be ready to talk about Jesus. This message is not only Bible-centered. It's not only Jesus-centered, but it's also salvation-centered. He's not going to just explain who the prophet is talking about. He's not going to give him a lecture on the ancient Near East. He's not going to give him a lecture on the linguistics of the text. No. He tells him the good news about Jesus. He brings him the gospel. And he does it not in a cliched way. He doesn't ask the Ethiopian eunuch to invite Jesus into his heart. He doesn't ask the Ethiopian eunuch to make Jesus his co-pilot or to elect him king. No, he says, this is who Jesus is. This is who the prophet was writing about. The one who has redeemed the world. The one who was slain unjustly. The one whose life was taken away from the earth for our salvation. You see, because salvation is not about inviting Jesus into our heart. It's about getting into Jesus. Being with Jesus. Being united with Him. That's the Gospel being so identified with Jesus that the Lord looks at us and He sees the works of Christ. That we have all of the benefits and blessings of Christ because we are united, we are one with Him. This is the proclamation of the Gospel by Philip. Well, this encounter was prepared for. This encounter was proclaimed in a presentation that was powerful. And now we see the result or the product of this encounter. What happens as a result of Philip's obedience and the Ethiopians seeking and God superintending every little circumstance? Well, the first thing that we see is evangelism happens. That's how evangelism happens when we are ready to share the Word, and when God has prepared the hearts of the hearer, and when God superintends the circumstances, and we obey. That's how evangelism happens. It's not manufactured. We cannot put a sign up out front that says, Revival tonight. 
because God's in charge of revival. We cannot put a sign up front that says, you will be saved today because God is in charge of salvation. But you see, what happens here is evangelism comes to a most unlikely person. This is an Ethiopian, but he's also a eunuch. He's perhaps the most disenfranchised person you could imagine. He's a Gentile who is not from the Holy Land, who looks different from everyone else, and who is not permitted to be a part of the people of God. The law of God forbids it. But you see, now, in the days of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ breaks down all barriers, including the barrier to eunuchs. This is the fulfillment of promise. You see, later we'll see that the Ethiopian goes away with joy, but I wonder if his joy became even greater as he turned from Isaiah 53 to Isaiah 56, which speaks of the great joy that will come to eunuchs as they are brought into God. They will no longer be called a dry tree, but they will be a part of the people of God. You see, God is bringing about the restoration of all, even the disenfranchised. He is bringing about a new witness, a witness to His work. This is what is happening here in the midst of evangelism. And it's not just a mere profession. A disciple is made here because he can't wait to get somewhere else. He, he sees some water and he says, can I be baptized right now? I want to obey my Lord in baptism right now. Perhaps Philip had taught him about baptism. But we don't just see the evangelism of one individual here. If we look behind the scenes, we also see an expansion of God's kingdom. If you think of God's kingdom in Acts as a series of concentric circles, we're about to see a new one. First, racially, the gospel came to the Jews in Jerusalem. And then it came to half-Jews in Samaria. And now it comes to those who are God-fearers, who are not quite all Gentile, but pretty much so. Soon, in two chapters, we'll see it come to complete Gentiles in Cornelius. We also see it expanding geographically. You remember Christ's words in Acts 1.8, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and where? The ends of the earth. Do you know where Ethiopia is? The ends of the earth. It's 1,200 miles away. God's kingdom continues to expand no matter what anyone does to try and stop it. One man is saved, but also the kingdom of God goes forward. Lastly, I want you to see something else that's a product of this encounter. And it's something we need to remember in modern America. That opportunities for evangelism aren't just about the salvation of a soul. They aren't just about the expansion of the kingdom. They're also about placing the emphasis of our lives on the Lord. 
this encounter reminds us that God is in complete control of salvation. It is impossible to be saved without God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that the natural man is blind to the things of the Spirit. And he goes further. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that not only is man blind, but Satan goes out and blinds blind men. He lays another level of blindness. How can the Ethiopian come to understand what's in Isaiah? How can he long to see God only by the work of a sovereign Lord? This is how God is at work. And we need to acknowledge that God is sovereign in salvation. Lastly, we see that God is sovereign and the emphasis is on His work. He takes Philip from one work to another. And then do you see what he does at the end? He takes him back again. He doesn't have him follow for two or three days or give personal instruction to the Ethiopian. No, he sends him up the coast. And Philip does what he always does. He preaches the gospel. And Philip, the evangelical rock star of Samaria, ends up in a town called Caesarea. And do you know what happens to Philip? We don't hear from him again until Acts 21. When 20 years have gone by, and we see whether in the limelight or in the shadows, Philip is preaching the gospel and he has four daughters who prophesy. You see, because the work is not about Philip. The work is not about the eunuch. The work is not about you. The work is not about me. The work is about God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we understand that as the church of Jesus Christ, then look out world because the power of God will be unleashed. Do you pray for that? Join me each day in praying for that to see the power of God in our world. Let's pray.